Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to this Under the Covers episode of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the Friday version of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where host Landis Wade and his author guests get under the covers. That's right. We get in and out because there are just too many interesting books and engaging authors in the region and not enough time. And just like the longer version of the show, you'll learn interesting facts about the authors and their books, and the authors will read their work. And also, like the longer version, you will find images, links, and information about the authors in the show notes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more, and I also love getting under the covers with my authors. So let's get to it. Hey, listeners, uh, welcome to this Under the Covers episode of Charlotte Readers Podcast. I'm visiting today with uh, Elliot Parker, the author of the book Snapshots, a collection of short stories. These stories are set largely in eastern Kentucky, southern Ohio, and West Virginia. The book was a 2020 finalist in the American Fiction Awards for Short Story Anthology. Diane Donovan, senior reviewer of Midwest Book Review, says that these stories challenge readers to think about their expectations and prejudices and her strong intention development plot and the ability to craft something unexpected and different from disparate life experiences. Meredith Sue Willis, author of Out of the Mountains and Revisions, says that Elliot is an observer and imaginer of life's quirky, ironic, random paybacks. His stories almost always have some twist or turn or surprise at the end. In many cases, the punishment of a nasty main character. Elliot, welcome to the show. Hey, Landis. Good to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and congratulations on the recent book. Thank you so much. Yeah, and you're the author of uh, four novels, too, as well. Uh, most recently, A Knife's Edge, which was an honorable mention, and Thriller Writing at the London Book Festival, and as the sequel to your award-winning novel, Fragile Brilliance, and your novel, Code of Murder, was named a 2018 finalist for genre fiction by American Book Fest. So with, with that kind of success, I've got this question. Why now write a short story book? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. That's a great question. I, I would say that I've always been a fan of short stories as a reader. I've always been someone who has enjoyed reading short stories. And I have found that over the course of my life as a reader, uh, when I have been in between books or I've been kind of tired of one genre and ready to move on to something else, I always start looking for short story collections. And so as a reader, that's been a big part of my reading life and a big part of what I enjoy. But I also think, Landis, as a writer, that short stories and writing short stories is really how I learned how to write because 
you know, within a short story, there are so many things that you have to do in order to write one effectively that maybe you don't have to worry about so much with a novel or a screenplay or something else. And that is, you know, character development is really important. You've got to be able to uh, tell a story, hook a reader early on at the beginning of the story, get them invested in the character, get them invested in kind of what's going on and what's happening to that person. Uh, or persons, in some cases, even get them invested in the setting, if setting is an important part of your story. And within 3,500 to 7,500 words, you have to have uh, a story that has the rising action, the climax, the falling action, and then the conclusion. And so it really taught me a lot about uh, clarity and conciseness of writing. It taught me a lot about character development. It taught me a lot about plot and how to have those various plot points that keep a story moving forward. And I think having done that and having written a lot of short stories in the past helped me when it became time to write novels. And so I've been working on this collection of short stories off and on since about 2011. And so I'd gotten to the point where several of them had been published in some other literary journals, and I was ready to kind of put everything together in one collection and see if it would be something that a publisher would be interested in. And several, you know, several publishers got back in touch with me about it and Morgan James publishing ultimately said, Hey, we love it and we'd love to publish it. So that that's kind of my long answer to your question yeah. about how I got into <laughs> short stories. Well, that's great. You're right. I, I took this book to the mountains with me recently. I was reading different books and I picked this one up. I'd read a couple of short stories in between as a breather and I'd pick it back up and I said, wait a minute. And we're going to talk about this in a little bit. I said, there's some different stuff going on in these short stories. It's not one one genre here, but we'll talk about that in a minute. But speaking of genres, you, you write these other thrillers, and I'm just wondering, you know, how do you go from writing thrillers to writing stories that are a little bit different than, you know, a thriller mentality? You've got some twists and turns. You don't know what's going to happen. Sometimes in a thriller, you know who's chasing who. It's just a matter of they're going to catch them, right? Right. That's true. That's very true. Uh, (laughs) Are they going to get there in time? Are they going to get that person in time? Yeah, that's true. So, all right. So something we have in common, Elliot, uh, you host a podcast program where you interview authors. It's called Now Appalachia, uh, which profiles authors and publishers living and writing in the Appalachian region. Uh, Just tell our listeners briefly about your podcast. Oh, well, thank, thanks so much for asking about it, uh, Landis, and thanks so much for bringing that up. Yeah, uh, I've, I've started doing the podcast, started hosting it in uh, August of 2017, so we just passed uh, our three-year anniversary. Um, it, it is something that I had no idea about or had any clue what I was doing or if it would be something I would be interested in. Um, when I lived in uh, southern Ohio and in West Virginia for a while, I hosted a a television program on uh, Armstrong Cable called Chapters, and it was a television program that just interviewed uh, local authors kind of in the West Virginia, Southern Ohio, Eastern Kentucky region, um, and kind of profiled them and their works and why they write the way that they do. Uh, That was new to me. That was something that I had been approached to do uh, by Armstrong uh, Cable. Uh, my, my, my undergraduate degree is in journalism, so I, I've worked in journalism. I've worked in media before, so I kind of had that background, but they approached me about doing the show. So I did that show for about, uh, gosh, five years, I believe it was. And those episodes got posted, of chapters got posted onto YouTube and on Facebook and on all the different platforms there where people can watch content. And Pam Stack, who is the executive producer of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, which uh, hosts and houses the Now Appalachia podcast, saw one of those episodes. And she reached out to me and said, hey, I love your chapters program. I love the way that you profile those authors. And I love the way that you kind of make them feel like the star of the show uh, on your television show. Would you be interested in hosting a podcast on our network? 
and I had listened to podcasts. I, I still listen to a lot of podcasts. I enjoyed a lot, but I'd never gotten into or thought about hosting a podcast show. And I didn't know anything about the technology that you needed and equipment and all of that. And so Pam was very kind and she said, well, we'll, we'll walk you through it. <laughs> and, uh, she did. And, uh, I just basically kind of reached an agreement with her. I said, well, let's do this. Let me do two or three episodes. Let's see how it goes. Let's see how comfortable I am doing it. Can I use the technology and how comfortable am I doing it? And let's see how this goes and what kind of response that it gets just as kind of like a trial balloon. And then if it's not going anywhere or I don't like it, then, you know, you can find someone else or we can move on. And we mutually agreed to focus on Appalachian writers because that was an area of her network that uh, a lot of her hosts had not been focusing on. And we have, as you know, uh, from, from your, from your program, so many wonderful award-winning outstanding Appalachian writers. And so we agreed to kind of set up this podcast program that I was going to host to focus on that. So I interviewed two or three authors and the feedback that Pam got from the show uh, was amazing that people were listening, people were interested, people were sharing and, and reposting and retweeting and redoing all of the social media resharing uh, of the episodes. And she got so much positive feedback about finally a show that profiles Appalachia and Appalachian authors that uh, that's how it kind of got started. And then we just continued doing it from there and three years plus and running. And here we are. So uh, it's been a great experience. I've met so many wonderful people and learned a lot and really developed some great relationships as a result of the podcast. Yeah, that's great. You and I have uh, had the privilege and pleasure of interviewing some of the same authors. And it's interesting to me. I've listened to your interviews of them after I've interviewed them. And we each sometimes take a little bit different approach, but we also get a lot of things uh, out of the authors. Uh, and you are probably uh, one that I should thank for now being a part of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, because you reached out to me to be on this podcast. And I saw that you were doing a podcast. So what, what, what's Authors on the Air? And so I reached out to Pam Stack. She then listened to some of my episodes and said, hey, why don't you come be a part of the network? So now these episodes are also going out on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. So uh, toast to the, uh, to the, toast to the network there. Absolutely. You bet. Uh, right. you a colleague on the network too. That's great. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, now I should, I should also tell our listeners, you're a graduate, uh, of the Bluegrass Writer Studio at Eastern Kentucky. You've got those Appalachian roots in your veins. You, um, you've got a doctorate and you teach English at the University of Mississippi. And I was just wondering, um, how has teaching writing, uh, to students helped you in your own writing journey? You know, that's a great question, too. It, it's helped me a lot because on the one hand, I see a lot of the same struggles and insecurities and lack of self-confidence that the beginning writing students I work with have, which were similar to what I had when I started uh, thinking about pursuing writing creatively and looking at maybe look doing something with this on a more permanent basis, other than just kind of writing stories for my own reading and my own pleasure. Um, they have a lot of those same issues. You know, they like to write. A lot of them are big readers. A lot of them have read their entire lives. A lot of them ha have been doodling in journals and different kinds of things their entire lives. Some of them worked on their high school newspapers. Some of them did a lot of different things, but uh, they, they lack sometimes that that confidence and the ability to believe in themselves that they can do it and that they uh, have a little bit of imposter syndrome. They think, oh my gosh, I'm in a, I'm in a, four-year university now and I'm in this writing program and, you know, do I really belong here? How did I get here? <laughs> Is this going to work out for me? So I, I see that. So I enjoy kind of 
helping them see that, that, yes, we all have stories to tell. And just because you tell it a little differently from your classmate sitting next to you doesn't necessarily mean there's less value in the story that you're telling. So I enjoy that part. And I just enjoy listening to the workshop. When we workshop stories, listen to the workshop comments, listening to what students point out as things that catch their attention, what things that they uh, point out that confuse them, what are some of the things that they point out that really grabs their attention and grips them and holds them through uh, an entire story or a poem or a play or whatever it is that uh, the students are working on. And in the intro to creative writing class I teach, it's you know open genre, so you can you can be interested in poetry or short stories or novels or whatever. And so when workshopping those manuscripts, it's really great to hear that because that helps me kind of see okay what are readers their age interested in, you know what catches their attention, what confuses them. And so when I'm sitting down to write something myself, if I'm targeting that age group as part of my readership, I got to think about that. I think about oh yeah, I remember my class last semester said they really hated it when. The, the first page was slow and plodding along. They really want to be grabbed from the very first page and, and pulled into the story. So that's been helpful. And it's just wonderful to see their success and to see them at the end of the semester and at the end of the year and at the end of their time in the program uh, with a packet of work that they're proud of, that they've workshopped and that they feel like represents their best work. Because we all go through that as writers. You know, We're all trying to develop our our packet of work and we've been encouraged and unfortunately sometimes discouraged by people along the way. But ultimately it's those people who encouraged us along the way that help us get to where we are as writers. And so I enjoy having a small part in that or a small hand in that and helping them see, okay, you know, you've got a voice and you've got a great story or set of stories to tell. Now take this, make it the best you can and go off and find it a home somewhere. And so that's what I learned probably the most in working with students. And every semester is different. Every class of students is different. What we talk about in one creative writing workshop one semester, we don't necessarily deal with a lot in the next semester. Maybe there's other issues we have to tackle. So it's always changing and always different. I like that part of it, too. Yeah, that's, that's great uh, advice. So before we get out of the covers here, uh, Elliot, let's look at your book cover uh, for Snapshots. Uh, you've got a it looks like a some wood paneling there and some pictures stuck to the wall. Is, am I looking at that? Yes, that's correct. Almost like a, a wooden bulletin board. <laughs> a wooden bulletin board with the uh, with with the snapshots uh, attached there, and I noticed that uh, you use as your epigraph a quote from Eudora Welty: "A good snapshot stops a moment from going away." Now, what did you have in your mind when you were thinking about that for your epigraph and the cover with pictures attached to a wooden bulletin board? Yeah, I um, I read I had read some Eudora Wealthy in graduate school, but it had been a long time since I had thought about her or read read about her. And then I saw that quote when I was working on kind of the collection of the stories and, and not every story that I had been writing and have written in 2011 made its way into this collection. Some were discarded and some didn't fit. And some I'm going to use maybe for another collection. And so I was sort of sifting through what am I going to include? What am I going to take out? And I saw that quote somewhere. I don't know if it was in a, 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 a writer's magazine or on TV or something, but I saw someone had quoted Eudora Welty. And I thought, well, that is a wonderful quote because that's exactly what's happening to a lot of my characters in these stories. And that is that uh, th they all experience a moment that's almost like a snapshot. And how I describe it is this way. If you take a snapshot picture with your cell phone or with your digital camera, and most of us use our cell phones to take pictures now because they work so much better than the Kodak digital camera that cost $800 five years ago. Uh, you know, when you look back at that picture, what you're looking at is a moment in time. You took that picture on a certain day at a certain time for a certain reason. 
and there's people and there's backgrounds and there's circumstances that 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 frame that picture that kind of hold that picture in place in that date and time. So if you're taking a picture at the beach, you know, you picked a day and a time and a moment in which you took that picture. Maybe there's people in the background or maybe, uh, you know, your, your children or grandchildren are sitting down on the beach playing in the sand when you took that picture. That's kind of encapsulating and, and holding that moment in that particular moment in time. And all of my characters in the stories have these moments where it's almost like, circumstances and what's happening to them sort of freezes like a snapshot. And they have a moment where they've got to stop and kind of take a look and take stock of, of what's going on around them. And they have to look at themselves and kind of look outside themselves and realize, Oh, I've got a couple decisions to make here. I can either go down this path that I'm continuing uh, to go on that I've set myself on, or I can take and go down another path and make another set of decisions and maybe reverse course and have a different outcome. Some stu- some of uh, the the people in the book stay on that same path to their detriment. Some of them make a decision and make a change uh, to help them out. But that's kind of where I got interested in that quote: is that uh, you know all of my characters are kind of having that snapshot moment where there's there's a moment that kind of freezes for them, and they have to look at it and think about okay, what's going on here, and how am I going to get out of this situation that I'm in? And then in terms of the cover itself. Uh, Morgan James was so nice. They gave me several options for uh, book covers to look at. A lot of them had the same theme, some idea of pictures randomly scattered on a surface uh, with the title snapshots and the uh, and the co- a collection of short stories written below it. Um, I liked this the best because um, I liked the color purple. This was the only one that, that had kind of that dark purple cover to it, which I thought was really eye-catching and appealing. And I thought that that purple cover with the wood textured background makes those pictures at the top stand out, makes the title stand out and makes my name kind of stand out. We had done some different textured surfaces, some, some flat, smooth surfaces, some rippled surfaces in the background, but I just thought the the wood paneling background really drew the color out that, that purple, that deep purple, and also made those snapshot pictures at the top kind of stand out. So that's ultimately what we settled on. But I, I'm grateful that they let me have some input. I've worked with some publishers where they say, this is your cover and good luck. <laughs> but they were nice enough to give me and allow me for some input. Yeah, that's great. Well, that's a great setup. All right, you ready to get under the covers? Let's do it. Hey, listeners, before we get under the covers, I'd like to share some benefits that are available to you, our listeners. If you sign up for our email list at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, uh, we will send you uh, a free ebook, the first book in my Christmas courtroom trilogy. We promise not to spam you. That just takes way too much time. We just provide a bi-weekly newsletter to let uh, listeners know what's coming and uh, allow you to engage with the show. Also, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O.fm. And if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word, you may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. All right, listeners, I'm here visiting uh, with Elliot Parker. We're talking about his uh, book, Snapshots, a collection of short stories. Um, He's also a novelist, but uh, today he's taking these snapshots in time, as he says, these photographs, these images, and he's uh, using them to tell stories. And Elliot, I just want to talk a little bit about the themes that are being explored in this book before I go through some of the stories here with you. Um, 
one of the themes, obviously, that jumps to the service for me is death in sort of strange and twisted ways. <laughs> and, and a second is relationships uh, with challenges that lead to surprises and choices, and then crime works its way in there. And of course, it never pays, as you <laughs> let us know in these stories. But, you know, death, relationships, crime, um, are those the themes that you see in this book? I, I think so. I, I think those are themes that uh, permeate a lot of the stories. Those are themes that uh, we all experience on a day-to-day basis, maybe not death and crime on a day-to-day basis, but but these are things that are always around us. We all have lost people close to us. We all are going to lose people uh, in our lives that are close to us. So, so that universal feeling of loss and how people handle loss uh, is something that within death I wanted to deal with. And then, you know, crime is always so interesting because, you know, I am a thriller writer, so that's sort of my my background or my wheelhouse a little bit. But, you know, crime impacts and affects people differently and, and in different ways, and people respond to that differently. But, um, you know, through those themes of death and, and crime or loss and death or loss through death and crime, um, you, you touched on it exactly right. It's, this book is about relationships. This is about... Um, you know, taking readers through kind of the small towns and the urban landscapes of central Appalachia, all of these characters that are featured in the stories, even the the primary ones and the secondary ones, they're really kind of uh, mired in these complicated sets of relationships. Uh, they occupy a lot of different professional spaces. We we have cops, we have lawyers, we have rich people, poor people, educated, uneducated people, uh, quote unquote, uh, all in these stories. And, um, you know, uh, you know, kind of the, the the attitudes that they have, the beliefs that they have, are shaped by their own personal experiences, their own backgrounds, their own expectations for what they think life should be or should have been for them, and so all that kind of comes together and kind of uh, uh, kind of caves in on one another, so to speak, uh, in each in each story. And so it, it is very much a book about relationships because every character in all of these stories has a relationship with someone else that is going to ultimately impact what happens to that uh, primary character in each story. Yeah. And Elliot, the read you're going to do today is from one of those stories that, that deals with a relationship between a father and a son uh, uh, reflections. We'll get to that in a moment, but I just want to focus on the spooky, the creepy, the crawly, the horror. You've got, you've got a couple of stories here. You've got one called hands. Uh, it's a story about an undertaker who looks into the eyes of the deceased against the superstitious warnings of another undertaker who says that your soul will be taken to purgatory if you do that. It's a tale filled with suspense, which doesn't end well in a cemetery. And then, and then there's Hub 2000. It's, it's, I mean, it starts out like a story. I mean, a guy's on a bus. He's at his last day of work at UPS. Young man joins him his first day. He's excited. He's supposed to show him around. And then it totally goes off the rails with a tale of suspense that turns into evil creatures and unexpected things that happen. And then there's reckless and that's a sheriff who's his last night of retirement. Who's drinking on patrol, hits a woman, kills her, returns to the crime, but she's not really dead after all. And then something else happens. And then, yeah, special needs was kind of a Edgar Allan Poe type story to me. It was a woman with a staff affection gets put into a uh, high security prison because they can't handle her. And she sort of gets lost in the system in solitary. And then, uh, princess to animal control officers. They just go, they're just going to help a woman find her pet who she thinks been poisoned. But when they go to find her, they find that their way out is not possible. And so these are all very, very different stories from reflections that you're going to read in some of these other stories. 
I'm just wondering about the mind of Elliot Parker that (laughs) (laughs) that got us into the spooky, the creepy, the crawly, the horror. Is that something you're drawn to? What I really like is not really the, the, the gore of horror so much in terms of, you know, hacking and slashing and all of that, but, but the terror that comes from, um, sort of a horror story plot where, oh my goodness, this is not, this is not what I expected to happen. So for example, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned reckless with Jonas Holdren, who's the sheriff who runs over that girl, because uh, he's, he's been, he's been intoxicated on his last day. And, um, you know, he expect you know, he knows this is going to be a bad thing for him, but he seeks out, se- seeks out to cover up what happens. And he would know how to do that being a, a, a sheriff and investigating crime. He knows how criminals try to cover things up, but he gets out there and he realizes, oh my goodness, this isn't what, this isn't what I expected. And not only is it not what I expected, but it is totally something that has surprised me and terrified me in a different way. And you mentioned Princess when uh, when when Dakota and his partner are going out to, to find Princess, who's the dog that's gone missing. You know, they just expect they're going to find Princess somewhere, either in the woods or in, in the custody of the neighbor across the street who uh, Edna Bruce says, you know, is always being mean to her, her puppy. Well, then all of a sudden they realize, oh, my goodness, he's been kidnapping and, and holding these these pets as prisoners in this in this wired cage that's electrified. Um, but you know, instead of them just thinking, okay, we're going to go in and rescue the fine princess, get these animals out of here and, you know, uh, arrest him or do whatever we need to do. Suddenly the worst, uh, imaginable thing happens and that terror that comes from the totally opposite, uh, set of circumstances changing from what they expect to happen. So I like that part of, of horror where, where, where the, the, the terror is real and it's, it's realistic and raw, but it's oftentimes is linked to, an expectation or a circumstance that the characters did not see coming. They feel like that there's a normal way to kind of handle their circumstance. And all of a sudden there's something that has changed in that circumstance. And now the terror and the fear is real and it's, Oh my goodness, what, what are we going to do now? Kind of thing. Um, yeah, so I like that part of horror more than kind of the, the hack and slash kind of stuff that comes with a lot of horror writing. Yeah. And that's true. And th- this one had sort of a tales of the crypt kind of thing where, where I remember some uh, story where the guys, bricked in he's still alive when the bricks are put up and, and you so you're 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 scared by the fact that you might be put putting yourself in a position like that to see what that end of, of could be like but but not to say that all your stories are like that let's don't leave the listeners you know because we talked about family and relationships and you have several stories that involve uh you know people dealing with relationships one called old lady uh, another uh is a trip involving a couple with marital problems there's the entirely humorous one uh, called sexting where you think you're at a baseball game and it's going to be about baseball, which, and there's some good scenes in there about the baseball game, but then suddenly at the end, it's a total different twist. And, um, but let's talk reflections, do a quick setup and, and read that for us. This is a story set in a temp cemetery. His son's paying his respects to his dad, uh, who was a mortician. Um, and he meets a caretaker who's cleaning headstones. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to say to set that up before you read it? Yeah, I, I would say this. I get a lot of questions uh, from readers and I've gotten a lot of questions from readers and, and folks that have interviewed me about this story. I would say of all the stories that I'm asked to talk about the most, uh, it's Reflections and it's Old Lady um, and then probably Reckless and um, is, is thrown in there as sort of a third and maybe the fourth story um, that I'm asked to talk about a lot is uh, is either Princess or, um, or, or uh, Hands. 
but uh, I get a lot of questions about reflections. And I would say this, that, you know, this is somewhat based on my personal life. You know, my dad was a mortician. Uh, he died in 2008 of pancreatic cancer. And so cemeteries and this kind of life that I, I'm going to read about uh, to uh, the listeners from this section uh, is true to me. I remember this. I experienced it. But at the same time, my thoughts and my responses to what I'm going to read is not me. So this story is told in a first person with an I narrator, but this I is not totally me. So a lot of the comments that you hear me make about uh, the dad in this story is not me sort of projecting my thoughts onto my dad. I want to make that quite clear. Um, I just changed some things around for dramatic effect. And so uh, those of you who know me, please don't, please don't call my mother or message her and say, you'll never believe what Elliot said about Brent the other day on this radio or this podcast program. But please don't do that because that's not true. I'm, some of this I'm projecting uh, just for dramatic effects. So I just wanted to kind of set that up. This is kind of connected to me in some ways, but it's also separate from me uh, in other ways. And so I'm going to start on uh, page 60 uh, at the top, and I'll just read, you know, a, a page and a half or so. This just kind of gives you a, a little bit of a flavor of what's going on here and kind of the narrator's thoughts and feelings about being in this cemetery and being uh, here with his father. As I proceed towards dad's grave, the early morning humidity hung in the air like a thick wool blanket with its suffocating persistence and felt heavy in my lungs, forcing labored breathing. I looked around and observed other broken gravestones, some of them nearly a hundred years old. That side of the cemetery was the oldest section where many of the previous owners and caretakers of the cemetery of years past were buried. The graves were speckled with a granular substance, making them difficult to interpret or read. The cemetery ground bucked slightly under my feet. I smelled nothing other than the thick, still, calm air. My steps grew slower and smaller as I approached the grave. Finally, Dad's grave was visible. The flat pewter headstone at the base of his grave was decorated with ornate marble lettering, declaring this place to be his final resting place. The wispy grasp under the headstone rose up in different directions. The nature and composition of the headstone gave the grave a regal appearance. Sometimes I felt guilty because Dad rested here alone. Mom was alone too, resting comfortably in that nursing home under the attention of strange men and women who made sure she was okay. Dad would not want to be separated from her, and yet here he was without her, surrounded by the graves of other family members, some he knew well, some he never knew. I dropped to my knees and my hands trembled. My stomach soured. Sometimes I needed medicine to calm my anxiety before coming to see him. Other times I relied on alcohol to take away the sadness and other feelings I had, but neither seemed to make the trips to the cemetery easier for me. Dad has been gone for five years, and I visit him at least once a month. I wonder if that is enough. How would dad feel knowing I came to see him for just a little while, one day out of 30 or 31 days each month? Then I thought about how often I saw dad growing up. Maybe my guilt was displaced. My dad was the only mortician in town, and he knew everyone. I could ask him anything about any family member in town, and he would tell me who their parents were, who they were married to, what they did as an occupation, and if their parents were still living. Dad put the community first, and they loved him. Our home was filled at Christmas time with succulent, mouth-watering cakes, pies, and candies from many of the widowed women in town or the surviving children or grandchildren of the parents and grandparents Dad had helped bury over the years. They gushed about him to Mom and me, and we could never go any place without him running into someone we knew, not that we went out as a family very often. Because of Dad's work, our house had a telephone in each room, including the bathroom. 
It would constantly ring, especially at night when a doctor, hospital, or family member placed a death call. Mom and I did a lot of activities together, just the two of us. Dad missed plenty of holiday dinners, Sunday church services, and many anniversaries because he was busy comforting grieving families. Sometimes Mom and I would talk about Dad, and it was, if it, and it was as if we were speaking about a mythical figure or someone from an urban legend. I never understood why Dad spent so much time away from Mom and me. He always said it mattered. When I needed Dad, he was at work. When Mom and I needed comfort, Dad was at work. When Mom had her stroke seven years ago, Mom was home alone when it happened because Dad was at the funeral home comforting a sad mother who had just lost her son in a car accident. I extended my hand and traced the letters of his name. My father loved cemeteries because of the serenity and respect they commanded. As a mortician, he brought so many families to these places. He often told me as a child not to be fearful of cemeteries, for they kept our loved ones safe once they died. We came to the cemetery every year, sometimes twice a year, to lay flowers and wreaths at the graves of our family members. Dad would always trace their names with his fingers. He would wedge his plump index finger into the grooves of each engraved headstone letter and slowly slither his finger around every inch and turn of the letter. Dad always preferred prominent, emboldened lettering on headstones because he said it made them regal in appearance compared to those with routine carved letters, which he traced with the same care and attention. Dad always said tracing the letters would help you never forget their names and their importance in your life. So I think I'll stop right there. Yeah, Elliot, and that's got a, uh, I, I can hear, you know, some of your own perhaps experiences being uh, the son of a mortician, being around graveyards, something that we don't have as much of anymore with cremation. It's hard to go visit a space when everybody's together in a spot uh, and feel maybe the same connection you would standing in front of a headstone. But this story goes further because it's you, you sort of foreshadow the influence that this man uh, the the protagonist's father had on people. And he meets a man in the graveyard who's a caretaker who's polishing headstones, which leads him to a very interesting conversation with a man who happens to polish his own father's headstones. It's just a very nice uh, tribute in that story, uh, different than what you've done in some other pieces um, in this book, uh, but also similar to, like you said, uh, Old Lady, which deals with uh, you know a woman who's, struggling with loss, but pr trying to find her way forward. So just a lot of uh, listeners, a lot of different uh, stories that you can, uh, you know, latch on to here, maybe find something personal that uh, appeals to you. Now, Elliot, in the little time we have left, I want to do a quick writing life segment. Um, do you ever think hard about uh, the first line of your stories? The reason I ask in the, in the one hands, it starts out with fingertips soaked in blood. <laughs> is that something you do when you're writing a short story is think about that first line or two? Oh, absolutely. I think the first line or the first couple lines of a story really, really set the entire tone for uh, your story and really set the expectations for your reader. And I hadn't thought about Landis uh, first lines until I read Stephen King's book on writing, uh, which if nobody has read, or if you don't have a copy of that, everybody should read that. Even if you're not a, a horror fan and you, you don't like Stephen King or not familiar with him, you should read it. But he has a section in that book about first lines and what first lines can do and the power that first lines or the first couple lines have. Um, and I couple that with kind of a, a, another book, and I can't remember the author's name, but it's a, it's a writing practice or a writing, um, a writing conventions book. It's called The First Five Pages. And how if you're writing a story or a novel or whatever it is, anything with uh, lengthy prose involved, the first five pages are where you kind of 
hook the reader and they're either going to be interested in what you've got to write about or they're not going to be. And so I kind of mesh those two together. But as a reader, I love to be kind of dropped in the middle of a setting or a circumstance and I kind of have to feel my way out of it uh, by the time I get to the end of the first page or the end of the second page. And so I try to use that strategy a lot. I do that with my novels too, but especially with short stories because you've got so much less space and you're in so much more of a condensed parameter and time frame in terms of how much space you have to tell the story. You've got to kind of get right to it and, and move on. And so I, I love that technique of, of grabbing the reader really by the uh, kind of by their, by their uh, shoulders and shaking them a little bit in, in those first couple of lines. I think it's really an effective technique as a writer to make a connection with a reader. Yeah, now that's that's the beginning of the story. Now, uh, you've also done a workshop before on how do you know when you reach the end, how to end a piece of writing with resonance. And I think it's a little bit different in novels and short stories because in a novel, you're working up, you have a climax, you have the denouement, you know, you, you get a little bit. But in a short story, sometimes the ending might be um, a little bit surprising and uh, it might be leaving you something to think about, which I think is better in a short story than after you've read 300 pages. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes <laughs> but, but but how do you know when you've come to the end of your short story uh, for me as a writer I, I know i've come to the end of of my short story when i feel like whatever it is that my character at the beginning of the story the primary character at the story at the beginning of the story whenever they did or did not achieve whatever it is they were hoping to achieve is satisfied or not satisfied uh, when that has occurred then i know uh, or has not occurred, that's when I know the story is over. So going back to one of the stories you'd mentioned earlier, uh, Reckless with with Sheriff Holdren, you know, he's trying to get through his last day on patrol, and he's trying to hide this drinking problem that he's had from everyone uh, his entire career for one more day. And, and can he do it? That's kind of the, the, the circumstance. Can he get through this ordinary, uh, sort of rudimentary, boring day where he's on patrol on this highway where nothing really happens so that he can go off and retire? Well, but by the end of the story, and we've kind of touched on on why some of the factors of why this happens, that doesn't he doesn't get away or doesn't get that peaceful send off into retirement that he'd been hoping for. And so I feel like it, as a writer, when I have answered that question or I have been able to say, yes, he got what he wanted or no, he didn't. And here's why. That's a good place to end it. And, and I like the, uh, the endings that you were talking about, Landis, where you kind of have to make readers uh, think a little bit. We were talking about reflections, and I read from reflections a minute ago. Uh, that's, there's an ending to that story that's very much that same way, where it, there's not really the, the prototypical conclusion that you would see in a novel, but it kind of leaves you with a few thoughts, a few kind of final moments to kind of ponder and reflect on what you've read. And, and I really like those kinds of endings as well. But you're right. They work so much better in short stories than if somebody's invested, you know, several weeks, over 300 pages of a novel or an entire weekend if they've read it through. Uh, but that's how I know when, when my character has not or has or has not accomplished what it is they set out to achieve from that first page. Then I know uh, it's time to finish the story. Yeah, and I like reading short stories and, and some of the ones I read in your book here that when you get to the end, you go, wait a minute. And then you got to think about it and go back and. Oh, okay, I see now. Now I get it. And you start thinking about it even more. All right, Elliot, um, if there's one thing you could tell your younger writing self, uh, you've probably asked this question of authors before too, uh, that had you known it then, it might have made you a better writer. Um, what would it be? I, I, I'd say two things, not to, not to break That's up right. your, your, your question, but I would say two things. One, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to send your work out for publication. Don't be afraid to share your work with other people. Don't be afraid of the criticism that you might get from other people based on your work. 
um, because those people that are offering feedback and offering that criticism, whether it's constructive or not, are taking time to help you because they believe in you and they want to see you succeed. And I was afraid as a young writer to share my work with people because I, not that I was thin skinned, but I was afraid they would think I was stupid or silly or some, some, something uh, non-acceptable because I'm writing about a certain story with a certain theme. And I was, I was afraid to share that. Um, so don't be afraid to, to share that with other people. Find a writing group or a writing community uh, where you have that opportunity to share your work with others. And don't be afraid to send your work out. I mean, I spent a lot of time as a writer filling up notebooks and filling up computer files full of writing that never went anywhere. Well, if you want to see your work published and you want to see it uh, read by an audience, and some people do and some people don't, and that's perfectly fine. But if you want to see your work read by an audience, you've got to send it out there and you, and you can't be afraid to do that. So those are the two things I would tell my younger self. I think I would have uh, been uh, a much more confident and less nervous writer about the process had I taken that advice early on. All right, Elliot. Well, uh, listeners, we've been visiting today with Elliot Parker. He's the uh, author of Snapshots, a collection of short stories, also four novels. He's also a college uh, professor who teaches young students the craft of writing, and he's also a podcaster. And if you'd like to uh, listen to him interview uh, authors from the Appalachian region, you can do so uh, at Now Appalachia, which is on all major podcast platforms, and also the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Uh, Elliot, thanks so much uh, for visiting with us today on Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Landis, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.